Good evening. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your patience. A little slow on our setup tonight. We've had more efficient evenings, but we're, we got it now. We're ready to roll. There is music on. I wonder if the kitchen wouldn't mind cutting the music. Or the, okay, wow, that was, I feel so powerful. <laughs> what am I going to ask for next? <laughs> I expect it to come true, whatever it is. Um, we're going to start and end, as always, with gratitudes. So we're going to start with goldentoday.com. They're so awesome. They promote our events. They also do a lot of awesome work around Golden. If you have a chance to go to their website, you can sign up to learn more about everything going on around Golden. Uh, they're also starting a new speaker series on Saturdays about Golden history. So you can learn more about that on goldentoday.com as well. So that's just getting going, and that will be taking place over at the library. Coming up here. And then we also want to thank the crew here at the Windy Saddle for always taking such good care of us. They're awesome. We want to thank Greg Reed. He's a local musician who lends us his sound equipment. And uh, when one of us remembers to go pick up the sound equipment, it works out even better. <laughs> so we got that going. We uh, have a rotation where we're doing local beers, and then we're alternating them with guest tap beers. So tonight we have a guest tap. And I'm going to bring up our uh, foreign envoy, who has been out on mission, <laughs> striving, practicing his diplomatic skills to bring us uh, tonight's beer. So I'm going to hand off to Jim Clausen here. So I was <clears throat> taught in my diplomatic uh, endeavors by Rex Tillerson, and we all know how, <laughs> how well that went. So uh, uh, don't expect a whole lot. So, uh, as Whitney said, um, we're doing a every other month uh, with a regional brew um, to kind of rotate and give our local breweries a, a breather um, and to kind of branch out and see what else is, is out um, in the area. Tonight, we are featuring Joyride Brewing. Uh, they're out of uh, Edgewater. Um, they're on the northwest corner of Sloan's Lake, if you're familiar with the Edgewater area. Um, it's a great little place, um, can hold, I don't know, at least 100 people or so. We were there on uh, Saturday, and uh, it was extremely crowded. Um, it's, a, it's a big local hangout. They've got uh, the whole front of it is covered with garage doors that they open up um, and uh, uh, let the fresh air in, so it was great. Um, Joyride itself refers to uh, slowing down, enjoying the moment. Sometimes it's about the ride. Um, stop and smell the hops is kind of their motto. Uh, started in 2014, they've got a 10-barrel brew house with uh, six fermenters and uh, eight serving tanks. Um, it's extremely dog-friendly. When we were there on Saturday, it was just packed with dogs. So if you're a dog person, this is a place you want to go. It was, I was in heaven. Um, so we've got um, four beers from these folks tonight. Uh, normally I would get two or three, but boy, they talked me into them. Um, okay. Well, I'll talk a little bit about the IPA. It was a West Coast IPA. Um, uh, obscene amounts of Apollo and Chinook hops with a touch of Amarillo. Uh, very citrus, piney, resiny, floral characteristics. Um, the hop explosion and dry finish make it extremely drinkable and enjoyable. So I, I really enjoyed it as well. I thought it was a very good IPA. It's one of their flagship beers, um, and so uh, they're really proud of that one. Uh, the other one uh, is the Bear Paw Oatmeal Stout. And um, it's a sweet stout, robust, silky smooth, seven different um, malts. Um, create chocolate, roast, caramel, and coffee flavors. Five pounds of lactose sugar um, uh, gives it a nice uh, sweetness, uh, but it is around 7%, so uh, it does have some claws. <laughs> the other one is the, uh, that would really hit the spot Hefeweizen. So this one was inspired by one of the, the brewmaster uh, 
the brewmaster's father uh, has been asking them to brew a Hefeweizen. It's his favorite style of beer. And finally this year they, uh, they did it and uh, really hit the spot was his, is his kind of saying. So they named it after his saying. Um, it's a German wheat, classic banana, clove flavors, um, very low hops. Um, it's classic for a Hefeweizen. Um, it's light, thirst-quenching, perfect for spring. And because it was kind of nice and warm when I got there and the doors were open, I thought, this is a perfect beer. And then the last one is the Czech Pilsner. Uh, very clean and crisp, cracker malt flavor, a uh, little herbal and floral notes uh, from, the, uh, from the hops. Um, it's got uh, bohemian uh, malt and yeast with Saz hops. Uh, and it's uh, just a very kind of um, classic Pilsner. Uh, they do a couple Pilsners a year in the wintertime when they've, their, their tanks are a little bit longer. They've got to let those go a little bit longer and lager. So um, uh, this is one of their lagers that they, uh, that they had out. And those are the four beers that we have uh, tonight. And so let's see. The next thing we want to do is introduce our speaker. And to do that, we've got Don to uh, give us a rundown of our speaker tonight. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Envoy. (laughs) Well, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker, Catherine Costello. She's a colleague of mine at the U.S. Geological Survey. Catherine has a master's degree from the University of Denver in uh, Geographic Information Systems, GIS. Uh, She's worked as a cartographer at the USGS for 31 years, and most of that work has been involved in in dealing with natural hazards. Uh, She did work uh, uh, following uh, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, She's done work with FEMA on on both uh, making flood maps and landslide hazard maps. And recently, she's become project lead for, and I have to read this, Maybe you can read it there. The Geospatial Multi-Agency Coordination Group, or GEOMAC, which is the subject of tonight's talk. Um, and if you'll indulge me just for a second, I want to I give you just a, a, a couple of, of uh, uh, contextual items that, that you can sort of hold in your head while Catherine gives her talk. Um, her official job description at the USGS is a, is a cartographer. Uh, specifically, that's someone who designs and produces maps. And she will be talking about a mapping application tonight. But just saying that Catherine makes maps sort of misses the point, I think. Because more properly, uh, Catherine is, and what Catherine does, is uh, geography, which is the science of where. Geographers ask where things are located on the surface of the Earth and why they are located next to each other and how places differ from each other and how those sort of spatially-based places interact with us, with humans. Uh, Geography really is unique in that it blends both the physical sciences, uh, physical geography, with the social sciences, or human geography. And I think you'll see that is apparent um, in Catherine's talk, where she talks about the technical task of mapping fire perimeters, but they have real human implications to all of us in terms of emergency response, human welfare, economics, ecosystem dynamics, and and lots more. So that's one point to keep in mind, this this interplay between the the, the technical and the human side. Um, The... Uh, second point to keep in mind is that geographers these days increasingly rely on a variety of technologies for mapping and understanding the planet. And these include geographic information systems called GIS, uh, remote sensing tools, global positioning systems or GPS, online mapping such as Google Earth, uh, and many others. And as you'll see tonight, um, Catherine's work uses all these tools, so so keep those two points in mind. Catherine is not a shy and retiring person, um, but she's going to sit for this because she has to drive the laptop, number one, and number two, she needs to remain close to her cough drops because she's getting over a bad cold that she had a couple of weeks ago, and she still got a cough. 
Um, but we're, we're happy to, to have her, and she'll soldier on with the help of some medicine. So here's Catherine. Thank you, Don. <laughs> All right, see if we can get this. Okay, can everybody hear me okay? All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to attend today. This is a great gathering. I had no idea that you guys existed, but now that I do, uh, you may be seeing you here more often, so thank you. Um, as Don said, my name is Catherine Costello. I work for the USGS, and I want to take a moment to introduce my colleagues. Uh, Victoria over here is my uh, co-lead for BLM, and Lori is also on the GeoMAP project, and she works for the USGS as well. So thank you for being here. Okay, today I am going to talk about GeoMac, and GeoMac started in 2000. So I want you guys to kind of go back to 2000. Google had just started, so people weren't used to just going out and Googling everything. You know, this was before smartphones, this was before tablets, this was before everything. So in September of 2000, there had been 79,000 wildfires in this country. Every single firefighter, tanker, air tanker, fire truck, everything, was fighting fires, and they had been since May. So the, the coordinators were struggling to try and figure out how do we figure out the priorities. Paper maps and, and situation reports were not good enough. So they came to the USGS and said, we need something that we can use to figure out you know, what humans are being affected by this, what natural resources, what infrastructure, where, how do we prioritize where we fight these fires? So we came up with uh, the first version of GeoMac. And it's been around for 18 years. And because I'm going to forget this at the end, um, in 2017, we had a billion hits to our website. But you guys remember how many fires were threatening homes in California and people, this is, this is where they went for information. So, Okay, so I'm going to talk about GeoMac. It's a public website. Anybody can get to it, and, and I'll show you all the, the links to all these things in the last slide. Um, this is the front page that you'll get to when you go to GeoMac, and I'll talk a little bit about some of this later, but the thing most everybody wants to do is launch the viewer. And I realize you can't read this really well, but hopefully you'll follow pretty good. Okay, so this is what we call um, a mapping application. So it's interactive. You can zoom in, zoom out, turn, in, turn on and off layers so that you can find what you're looking for. Starts with the USGS, or starts with the United States. You'll see these green triangles. And what that tells you is those are what they consider large, high-priority fires. Every fire gets a point, which or a triangle, but the green ones indicate that these are the ones that are the highest priority for whatever reason. They're threatening homes. They've burned so many acres. They've you know, committed so many resources to them, whatever. And you can see a list of all of those. If you go over here, there's a thing called Jump to Wildfire, and there's a list of all of those green triangles. And you can jump to any one of them. So let's go ahead and jump to Orchard, Colorado. Okay, so there was a fire named Orchard, and it was it's on Fort Carson military base, and you can zoom in, you can zoom out, and uh, there's uh, what they call street view behind us, so you can kind of see, you know, where it's located, what kind of terrain's around, what cities it's near. If you hover over that green triangle, you get a little bit of information, but if you go up here and click identify and click on it, you get a whole lot of information. So you can see the name of it, the incident number, when it was discovered, how many acres it's burned. And if you want to see more information, you can click on this link down here, and this link goes to NIFSI. NIFSI is the National Interagency Fire Center. They basically coordinate all the firefighting activities in the country. And you can go down here, and if you click down here, I mean, there's a whole bunch of information about what's going on in the whole U.S. But what I like to do is if you click on the Incident Management Situation Report, Well, of course, it's not going to show up right. Well, then that's why we have this. Um, they produce this. Right now, it's kind of at a low level right now. We don't have a whole lot of fires going on relatively, and so they only produce this once a, once a week. But when preparedness level gets to three, they do it every day. So you can go through and you can see that 
initial attack of titties. So far, we have 861 fires already this year. And it's, it's only mid-March. You can basically kind of see over here, um, they've divided the country into what they call GACs, Geographic ever, uh, Area Coordination Centers. How many acres have burned? How many crews are out? How many engines? Total personnel? You can go down here. So in the southern area, these are the big, those green triangles I was talking about. You can read a little bit about what's going on with any of those. Anyway, something that you can also look at. Okay, in addition, over here we have data layers. So if you click over here, you can see current year fires. Okay, current year is kind of a misnomer. When we're talking about current fires, those are those green triangles, so it's not every fire, it's just the ones they kind of consider the high priority. And those are the point d data. So if you, you can click that on and turn it on and off, and you can see that the green triangle disappears. Um, we also have complex points. What happens is that if they have three or four fires that break out close together, they might manage them as a complex. So each individual fire might have a name, but then they will also give a name to the complex. And depending on how the things are going is what you'll hear on the news. Sometimes they'll talk about the eclipse complex or the Thomas fire. The Thomas fire might be part of the eclipse complex. but So we try and, and give you all the information so that whatever you're looking for, you'll find on here. We also have the current fire perimeters. And you can also jump to those if you go up here on this other drop-down, which is jump to active fire perimeter, you will see that we only have three listed. We do not get perimeters for every fire. And the reason for that is sometimes they're small fires and they don't really worry too much about it. Um, sometimes uh, it's, it occurs in states or counties that don't have a lot of federal land. And so they might not have a really big GIS group, so they don't actually create a perimeter, or they create a perimeter, but they either don't know how to submit through the federal systems, or they don't want to play with us. So we take what we could get. So right now we have, out of all that list of, of green triangles, we only have perimeters for these three. So let's click on Clear Lake, and it will jump right to Clear Lake. And this is in Florida. And you can see the outline of the perimeter. Um, we also have what we call the latest perimeters. So for every fire that we have a perimeter for, we have a latest. Because we might get multiple. Like for the Thomas fire in California, we had 100. But most people just say, I wanted to see the latest one. I don't care what it did three weeks ago. I just want to see what it did today. So that's the latest. And you can click that on and off, and then you'll see the latest perimeter for every fire that we have. You can also see all the current year fires. So if you want to see all of the perimeters, you can see the progression, how it moved. And some people are very interested in that. And again, you can turn these layers on and off as you see fit. One of the other things that we have on our site that a lot of people find uh, useful is the thermal data, uh, what we call MODIS and VIRS. So if you turn on MODIS, you will see that these are hot spots that the thermal satellite has picked up on or the thermal imagery. Red means it's within the last 12 hours. Orange means it's between 12 and 24 hours ago. Black means it's between 24 and 48 hours ago. You can also turn on previous modus, so anything beyond 48 hours will show up. And again, if you're on Identify, you can click on that, and it will tell you that, it was t that the date is from the 2nd of March. And you can just kind of scroll through. It looks like there was a lot of them. Same thing with the current modus, usually. Oh, there you go. That actively burning, and the date was as of today. So a lot of people find that interesting because when you have a perimeter and you can see that one end has all that red thermal, thermal data, you know that's where it's burning and that's where they're fighting. And a lot of people in California were paying attention to that because they wanted to know which direction the fire was headed. Was it headed towards their house? So they paid attention to where the thermal data was. Okay, you can also um, go to past year fires. So again, we've had fires all the way back to, or perimeters all the way back to 2000. Um, and you can turn those on by clicking on the historic perimeters. And those will show up in a variety of colors. 
And if you want to see, you can always go to the legend if you're curious about what the colors mean. And you can see when it's turned on, you can see what the, the layers mean. And again, the fryer perimeters. There's a lot of people I know that say it's really hard to distinguish you know, between 2007 and 2008 because those colors look really close together. But between the thermal data and the current year data and almost 20 years worth of fire perimeters, it's really hard to come up with a color scheme <laughs> you know, that's different for everything. So we've done the best we can. Um, you can also, if you're curious about a definition on any of these, like current fires or let's go with MODIS. If you go down here to MODIS, if you click on here, it will bring up a definition of where we get the data, how often it's updated, what it means, those kind of things. So, um, And just to let you know, MODIS is what we call a data feed. Um, we don't own the MODIS data. It's collected by somebody else and processed by the Forest Service. Um, but we like to have it on our website because people find it useful. And so we have kind of a direct pipeline, a read-only pipeline into their database. So we don't have to worry about downloading their data all the time. Whenever they change something, it automatically shows up on our website. Okay. We also have different kinds of boundaries. We have climate prediction, although I'm not sure how much those are going to be useful. But we also have different base maps. So right now you're seeing street map. But we also have a USGS topo map. Again, this just gives you more information about you know, where this fire is located. We also have imagery. And you can zoom in. And some of the imagery is pretty good. You can zoom in, and you can see individual houses. So, And again, you can see that some are dark and some are light. So again, trying to find color schemes that work on both a light and a dark background kind of be kind of challenging. Anyway, that's uh, another thing that you can go in and change as you like. Um, let's see. What's next? One of the other sites that we have that provides a lot of good information about fires is something called NCWeb. So NCWeb is a federal system. And they get a lot of federal fires, but sometimes not a lot of other ones. But they have really good information on fires. So, for example, I'm going to go to Chetco Bar Fire, which actually was a 2017, because they don't have a lot of information yet on the 2018. And if you go up here on the top, you can see a list of all the current incidents. You can also select by state. So if you're just interested in Colorado, Montana, whatever. And then here you pull up Checo Bar, and it has a lot of good information because it tells you this was updated as of, you know, 1020 was the last time they updated. But they give you kind of the, the rundown of what's going on. They talk about any closures, so, you know, road closures or evacuation notices, anything like that. Um, if there's, um, you know, any kind of public meetings coming up, they will usually list those here. Um, they will a lot of times list, um, you know, sheriff's numbers if you need to get a hold of somebody, things like that. And then kind of the basic information, you know, what was the cause of the fire? When was it, when did it start? Kind of exactly where is it located? Who's the commander? Things like that. So there's a lot of good information that they have on this site. And usually they will show the perimeter here too, which they get from us. But keep in mind that this is kind of the off season for fires. So this is the time when we all update our websites and update the software. And when you do that, as you all know, when you update your software, when you update your system to a new operating system, everything goes wrong. So we're still working out the glitches. So keep that in mind if you go to the website tomorrow and, and nothing's working quite right. We're working on it. And we'll hope to have it up within the next month because we want to be ready for fire season. Okay, so... State line fire. We do not have a perimeter for that yet, but that's where it is. You can see the modus. There's no current modus, it looks like, but there is previous modus. Looks like uh, most of the heat is at least 24 hours old. But again, you can zoom out, zoom in. And if we had a perimeter, you could see where it was. Um, back to the home page. So when you're on the home page, there's a couple of other things. I don't know if you guys are interested. Um, there's a lot of people that use our data. 
not only the website, but they want to use our data. So for research, so we have a couple of different ways that people can access our data. I told you about the data feed that we get from the MODIS. We offer the same thing. We provide uh, a read-only access to our database to people. So whenever we change something or update our database, they will automatically have access to it. So those kind of data feeds are what we call our services, and there's information here on all of our services. So anybody can use them that wants to. These are all public sites. There's no information in here that is considered privileged. Everything that is on our site is considered public information. Um, but then there are also some who, like, I don't want a data feed. I just I want to really dig into your data. I just I want to pull out California, and I want to pull out, you know, just the fires that are more than 100 acres and, you know, stuff. So we also have... a what we call an outgoing site. And it's just a site you can click on, and you can go in either by state or you can go in and download all the perimeters so far this year in a shapefile format. And shapefile is specific to Esri, which is a kind of GIS product, but they're such a big company that most other GIS software packages will work with a shapefile. Um, however, one of the other things that we've been also providing is what we call the KMLs. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with KMLs, but um, if you go to Google Earth, um, if you download our KML file, you can bring up the perimeters on Google Earth, just like I've done here. This was the Thomas fire in California that, that actually started, what, November last year? And um, it's really nice to see on Google Earth sometimes because you can really get an idea of the scope of it and, you know, just how close it came to some of these uh, populated places. So, anyway, we have a list over here of all our current fire perimeters for this year. Galenus. So, if you, if you do a file and open the KML file and have all the perimeters, all you have to do is click on it, double-click on it, and it will take you right there. And Google Earth is a free software, I believe, so anybody can, can use this. Okay. Oops. Um, I think that's everything. Um, I think I mentioned in 2017, we had almost a billion hits to our website and our data services. Um, as more people are getting more tech savvy and there's a lot more technology available to the firefighters and the, the people on the ground. Uh, we're getting a lot more perimeters every year. Um, although in the heat of the fire season, you know, a lot of the GIS people, they're working on the big fires. And so a lot of people ask me about the small fires. And we do get the small fires, but it's like two weeks ago is when I got 270 fires from 2017. But, you know, they is they, they were just getting around to working on those. So um, I need to go and put those into our historic database. So sometimes the small fires don't show up for a while just because they're so busy trying to get the other stuff done. Um, there's a lot of work to do. As you know, like I said, 79,000 fires in that one year, and, and that's a lot of work for everybody. Um, so last year, I think we ended up with 7,400 perimeters in our database, and we process perimeters every day. So what happens is... Uh, People on the ground will post perimeters to a variety of sources. We go searching those every day, and we try to have all the perimeters for that day posted by noon. And we might get one perimeter. We might get none. We might get seven because it's such an active fire, and it's changing so fast. Um, we try to have it done by noon because people are looking, and they want to see what's going on. And um, we do this seven days a week in the heat of fire season. So do the, and my folks do a great job. This is they've been working on this a while, and they don't complain at all. They just they get it done because they realize how important this is. So, I'm sorry. No, not really. Um, we post by noon unless there's some really particularly high moving fire, and then we'll check again later that day. But chances are, if they haven't posted by like four o'clock, they're not going to until the next morning. We do get a, a variety of types of perimeters. Um, they can create them using GPS. People walk in the ground. They'll create them uh, from aerial photos. Uh, they'll create them from the thermal data. At night, they'll fly the thermal data, and the GIS people will use the, the heat signature to draw the perimeter. Um, and with the technology spreading, we're getting all kinds of different ones. So. Do you have data to show the increase, the increase in 
Um, yes, I do. I don't have it with me, but yes. It is only going up. So why don't we take a break and then okay. go to Q&A? Okay, that sounds good. I want to do that real quick. Yes, that that's fine. Okay, so. There's a little beer back there. <laughs> 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 then we'll do, then we'll come back and we'll start back up. That sounds good. Thank you. All right, we're going to get started here on our Q&A. There's a ball. So before we get started, um, I want to introduce our ball. Are you okay? You're messing with it, <laughs> or it's not feeding back? We do have a little bit of a, an issue if you get too close to the speakers. Uh, sometimes there's a feedback, so um, if you're kind of sitting in those areas, you know maybe get a little closer to it and keep it away from the speakers and whatnot. So. Um, you're on it. This is a cue ball, question ball. <laughs> yeah, so when we, when, when we move it around or we toss it, um, the microphone cuts out um, uh, so that there's not a lot of noise um, in the jostling around. So when you get it, um, uh, you, may, you have to wait just a second before it to kick back in. Um, and so uh, the other thing is um, when you get the ball, um, you know, if you want to ask a follow-up question, that's okay, but for forever. <laughs> um, and uh, how, what we're going to try is um, once you get the ball and you ask your question, I'm going to be the pitcher, so you'll send it back, and then we'll pick the next person, and we'll kind of do a centralized um, uh, pitch and throw there. All right, so let's start with the questions. Who's got a question? First question. I think I cut off no, it's good. It's good. Okay. All right. Okay. So I'm, I'm right here, and I could just talk to you. But <laughs> I know, but what fun would that be, right? Okay. So my so what I asked before, sorry, I was so rude. My brain just starts. Okay. Which is not often. So my question was the incidents, and she said that it's only gone up. So if you didn't hear the first one, and so my next one is who else is interested in this data? Because my I'm you know brains jumping all over the place thinking that weather. So what what's the tie to climate change and global warming and yada yada? And is that already happening? There are lots of people studying that. Well, there were lots of people studying that. <laughs> But I'm not going to say anything more about that. Um, um, yes, uh, there's a lot of people that are concerned about that. And, um, you know, what it's doing to water quality. What is it doing to um, erosion? Uh, I mean, just the fact that so many more people are moving into forested areas. And, you know, we have that same problem here. People move up into the mountains and, you know, the trees are there. So, you know, they, they usually tell you, you know, you need to clear the trees away from your cabin so that it's protected from fire. But there's a lot of people that say, but that's why I moved to the mountains. I want trees. It's like, well, then, you know, you, we don't fight the fire when it comes to your house. So, yeah, there's a lot of different aspects of the fire. You know, um, is it a human cause? What, what's the problem there? Um, lightning strikes, you know, drought conditions. Um, there's, there's just so many things related to fire. So part of the thing is who else is interested in this data? Um, well, of course, during season, during season um, gen the general public, um, we get a lot of news media. The Washington Post and the New York Times both used um, geomatic perimeters in their articles. Um, we get a lot of things from you know, people writing stories. We get a lot of um, uh, even uh, incident commanders um, are looking for information that they don't necessarily have immediate access to, so they're calling us. Um, and in the off-season, we get a lot of insurance companies because they want to know where the fire went so that they can start you know, insurance claims. We get a lot of researchers. Not only people who are researching fire, but, for example, we have BLM people who are doing um, sage-grouse habitats, and they want to know where the fire is burned, and, you know, sage, sagebrush studies, and um, so, you know, it's, it's a year-round thing. It just sort of, and, and even now the general public's still looking because they, they still want to know what was going on with the Thomas fire. 
Please do. I'll try and move away from the speakers. Um, another thing is the National Weather Service actually uses GeoMAC data. So one of the requests we got last year is in the BLM, we have a lot of, I'll call them podunk fires. They're like little, they're tiny, and they're middle of nowhere. Um, so we have like National Weather Service uses the GeoMAC feed in their data modeling and in their when they're doing their smoke modeling for the communities. And another area that really utilizes this data is the emergency operations centers. So emergency operations centers are kind of outside the chain of command where we're managing the actual incident, where we're actually fighting and cutting the line. Emergency operations centers are the people who are gonna be handling your evacuations, your sheltering, where you put your horses, um, that kind of information. And so those emergency operations centers are also utilizing the GeoMAC data. So one of the nice things is by having this centralized feed from an agency perspective is many other places like the military and the National Weather Service can then just utilize that information over and over again in their modeling and in their reality. But um, National Weather Service is one of the customers that last summer was like, excuse me, where's that podunk fire in the middle of Nevada? Because we're trying to model the smoke for it. And the answer was, well, we had the perimeters and we had to just start processing them for them because we hadn't got it from our agency perspective. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities there once you put all that interagency information in one place to utilize it in those different models and such. Victoria is one of my best resources for going out and finding perimeters that we don't have yet that somebody really, really wants. I like making friends. <laughs> okay. I recently learned about a, a location system called What Three Words, and I didn't know whether that has been utilized at all or starting to be utilized. I've never heard of that. That's interesting. It's a TED Talk. Oh, she knows. Okay, good. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I brought her for a reason. I, I spend a lot more of my time like getting to play outside of the, just the research world sometimes. Um, so What Three Words is an interesting project. Um, it has been utilized a number of times in more of that emergency management perspective. It's not utilized as much in the response sector. So the response sector are the people who are going to show up and fight the fire and manage the fire. Um, we have seen it more from that, I would say, like search and rescue -y type world. But when you come into the incident management, there's something called a national grid. Um, and there's also latitude longitude. It depends on what, if you're in wildland fire versus flood versus these different types of natural hazards. Um, so it is known. It is somewhat utilized, but I wouldn't say it's utilized by the government perspective as much. But if you get to the local government, like counties, cities, townships, they're a lot more jazzed about it. Um, and it's fun. It is, it's a thing where you basically get to a place and wherever you are in the world is assigned three words. And you're within a certain box. Um, so it's not used as much on the incident mapping side because we're much more concerned with like big locations and lots of details. Um, but from the public side, it's really fun. Thank you. Um, did I hear you right? Did I hear you right that um, very few of these fires that come to you are the perimeters already mapped? Um, I, you said only three of them you have perimeters for, or something? Yes. Um, like I said, you know, seventy-nine thousand fires, and last year we got seven thousand perimeters. Oh, you got seven thousand. Yeah. So there's a lot that we don't get either because they're small or they don't want to play with us or they don't know how to play with us or they just didn't create one. Okay, because I, I think it sounds really important to get the perimeter. You know, I actually think we're getting more of them just because I think more people are aware now and we're making it easier to do that. And, Victoria, do you have something to add? <laughs> so one of the things when I started out off in my career nearly 20 years ago, um, I actually started getting involved in fire because I was one of those people that went out on a fire and mapped the fire. So it's a very, it's a niche within a niche kind of area. So one of the things to understand is that 97% of our fires 
are caught before the first 24 hours go. So how many fires we have that escape that initial attack. So initial attack is that first 24 hours and then get big is they say between three to 5% of the fires total for the U.S. So we in the BLM say, okay, you all have to map every fire over 10 acres. And it doesn't matter if you got it on initial attack or if you got it after a week or three months. And so a lot of the fires are not mapped till the end of the season or they're not mapped till halfway through the season because the majority of those fires are caught in initial attack, whether they be 1,000 acres or whether they be 10 acres. So the agencies have what's mandated under fire history to collect certain perimeters. We haven't necessarily, because GEOMAC is kind of that live operations perspective, the agencies keep a lot of the fire history. And they're called... I mean, fire terms, the ABC fires, the little ones. You know, you don't need those because Geomax's focus is those multiple operational period incidents that are large. There are over 100 acres, over 300 acres, over 1,000 acres. And so it's not really within the focus, but a lot of the agencies have a lot of those fires. Um, and then you'll also realize that some of these fires, even though they're 1,000 acres, have like 10 guys on them. I mean, really. It's in the middle of Nevada. And some of these acres, they'll have 10,000-acre fires that have, like, 20 guys on them because there's not that many resources when you're in the middle of Nevada. And I use Nevada a lot because BLM. Um, so Bureau of Land Management, we have, like, a lot of land out there. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is until you reach, I'd say, usually around 200 to 500 people working on a fire, you don't normally have it mapped wallets running and gunning. So a lot of those fires that we collect after the fact don't necessarily make their way to GEOMAC. But once we have the big running and gunning fires and we've got 500 people working the fire out in California, we used to get like 2,500 people working on a single fire, then those are the fires that you're collecting the perimeters every day and delivering them through that automated, you know, through that process. But until you reach that interagency point, those... Um, you're working from an agency policy standpoint versus an interagency policy standpoint. So when you get to that interagency policy, that's when those requirements come into effect. When you're in a single agency, you have different requirements for your organization. Great. <laughs> yes, thank you. Don't let go of it until I have it. <laughs> Could you explain to us exactly the process of how they create the perimeter so that it can be entered into the system and be visual? Well, there's a variety of ways that they do that. Um, uh, the firefighters can have a GPS, and they might walk the perimeter, and they will create a shape file that they... Most of the big incidents has, have their own GIS people working on it. So, um, you know, one of the firefighters with the GPS walks it and they give it to the GIS person. Or, you know, they'll have the, the thermal satellite data and the GIS person will get that and just draw a line around where he, see, he or she, she sees the, the heat signature. Um, they might have aerial photography. The drone flew, flew over and they'll use that to kind of draw the outline of where the perimeter is. So there's a variety of ways that they can come up with the perimeter. Once they have the perimeter, um, there's a couple of different places where they put it, and then we grab it. So there's a, an FTP site that we can grab from. There's a couple of other data feeds that we use. There's a couple of new ones that are coming online this year that we're going to hopefully start grabbing from. So there's probably about four or five places that we look for perimeters every day. And if they put it on one of those places, we'll find it. And every once in a while, somebody will email it to me just because. And I'll take that, too. <laughs> Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Thank you. How, how much local participation have you had from, say, the front-range um, entities as far as how much they participate um, providing you data? They've been really good about providing us data. They they like us, and, and most of the fire community does because I mean, everybody, it's in everybody's best interest to share data, and so we usually get really good cooperation, uh, especially here in the Front Range because we're all co-located and and everybody seems to know each other. So, do you think part of that is because you're with USGS and you you have the regional 
area. I think here that, that helps. You're pretty well known. How, I think it how helps. How do you get that information out there to to places that you know? That's a good that question. This is a good resource for for, for non-federal agencies. To, yeah, for non-federal agencies, sometimes it's really hard to get the word out there. But I think just as more and more people find GeoMac to use for their personal use, and then they they start. And I get a lot. We, as a matter of fact, up here. Um, there's a GeoMac email address, geomac at usgs.gov. I welcome comments. I get a lot of them a lot of times. I get a lot of questions. I get a lot of feedback. As a matter of fact, I really do welcome all of your feedback today on, on the presentation and on um, our website. If you go to our website and you don't understand something or if you want to see something changed, uh, please do let me know. But, yeah, I think as, as more people see GeoMac, then they start wanting to know how they can help or how they can get their perimeter into GeoMac. And so I, otherwise it's just really hard, especially for states and counties that just don't have a lot of federal data or federal land because they just, they're not used to playing with the feds. They really just don't know how. So we're trying, and it, it takes some time. But if anybody has any suggestions, I'm open. <laughs> so has any consideration given to adding to the mapping tool, the interactive tool, other data layers, geospatial data layers showing protected resources, so protected areas, watersheds, critical habitat, because of, you know, looking at the intersection between the fires and past fires with those uh, layers might be really interesting. We're always open to suggestions. Um, nobody has ever asked for that before. Um, part and, and part of it might be a sensitivity thing. You know, some of those things you mentioned might be considered true, but sometimes they don't want to really advertise that data, even though it's public information. Another thing is you have to keep in mind, like, this is a very, so this is a public site, right? So some of the, it's kind of interesting if you look at some of the research, like, City of Denver's done in their GIS is really about how answering individual questions and specific questions really um, is more effective than trying to provide all the data for nerds like us who love to analyze everything. It's true. Um, you know, because a lot of the people who have a lot of that perspective are the people who are going to have access to some of the tools. And you have QGIS and some of the other open source GIS out there that you can utilize. Um, another thing to remember is this is the open public side. So there is an entire other application that's very focused on the operational side. And on the operational side, we have the sage-grouse habitat, we have where the resources are going, and we that's have true. all this, you know, we have where the IR flights are live when they're live. So we have an agency perspective that does incorporate a little bit more of that analysis side. But I will say, even as an agency nerd who spends all my time in this space, it like gets to the point where you're like, what are you going to do with 50 layers? Um, so they are trying to create, we call it common operational pictures, where it's a way of looking at all the data at the same time, and you can look at it from an air ops perspective, from an information perspective, or from an analysis perspective. So we do have a lot of that stuff available, and we have it available from the agency side. But in terms of answering the question, which a lot of the goal is, is where is the fire now? Where has it been, and where do we think, in general, it's going? That you can use some of that IR-type infrared stuff. Um, I think that this answers that question without getting too complicated. Plus, we also sometimes have to, to look at the performance of the website when we get a billion hits. Um, you know, the more data we put on there, sometimes the slower it gets. So we need to kind of balance that too. So you're title of your website doesn't say fire in it. Does that mean that there was an intention at some point that it would cover things more than fire or that it does cover th more things? Like, do you track tornadoes or drought or any of those things? That's a really good point. I think when this was originally created, then they didn't quite know exactly what the scope was going to be. Um, right now we are centered on fires. Um, there has not been talk about including other things, although I guess that's a potential. Right now, I think it's all we can do to keep busy with the fires. <laughs> but no, it's true. We could expand into other things. So with all the data you have to deal with, do you guys have artificial intelligence on your roadmap so that you can look at all that data? <laughs> Don't we wish. <laughs> well, how about, like, grass 
crowdsourcing. Oh, crowdsourcing. Uh, no, actually, um, during the 2012 fires, uh, I was actually working for the state at the time, not the feds. Um, and I will say that the local governments tend to be better at utilizing crowdsourcing information. There also is a lot of stuff you have to filter through to get the important information. Um, but, you know, we were checking, and, and you'll see this a lot more on the public information officer side. So when you want to talk about crowdsourcing, there's a couple different ways you can do it. One, which is just like the full stream, right? And some of our, um, I'll say our industry partners really enable that. So ESRI, which is one of the industry partners that ends up using the data a lot, will post tweets and YouTube videos and stuff like that on their map. Um, from the situational awareness point, where you're just kind of trying to get an idea of what's happening out there, it's used a lot by local governments. So the state of Colorado, um, they actually teach, they have what's called um, VOST, so Volunteer Operating Supporting, um, and I'm going to forget what the acronym stands for. You get to a point in government where you actually forget what all the acronyms stand for, you just know what they are. But it's basically a team that will help you at that local level sort through all the stuff that's going on on social media. Um, and they keep updated. But it's more from that public information officer perspective and situational awareness, whereas this really is more of a data delivery system. Um, so it is used. Um, I will say sometimes it's more important than others. I personally like when we're, when a fire's running and gunning, and you're like, oh, here, let me go to Instagram and see all the plumes. And then you hit the point where you like toss it up, and you're like, anybody know where these street intersections are? Oh, that's where it's going. Okay. So, I mean, there's, there's some ways you can utilize it, um, but it's not as, I'll say, integrated at the federal level unless you're looking at an incident-by-incident incident perspective. Thank you. Did that work? Did that answer your question? Okay. <laughs> okay. Going once. Going twice. All right. Oh. Just a real quick one. Real quick one. How, how many people do you have working specifically on this? There are seven of us. And um, they're a great group. They've been working for a while now. And um, it's nice because we used to only have two people doing this, and they did not have a life. Because, I mean, when we do this, you know, 20, when we do this seven days a week, it's, it's really hard. So we've got seven great people that, that work on this pretty much year-round, but um, really, really dedicated to it in a, a big fire season. And, and what we consider fire season is what, May to October? But, I mean, it used to be. This is true. It used to be, but now, yeah. You know, the Tennessee firestorm happened in November. The California ones happened in November. So you just never know anymore. But anyway, so thanks. And just for closing, these are the three websites that I talked about today. Um, they are public websites, so anybody can get onto them. Um, and, again, I've also included the GeoMac email address, so I welcome um, any questions or feedback that you might have. Fantastic. Let's uh, give Captain Ron applause. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for coming. And that will wrap it up for tonight.